As a society, we've created an image of what we consider to be the ideal Australian soldier, and it's an image that's been curated by correspondents and artists of the time. It is of a tall, broad-shouldered, steely-eyed man dedicated to the defense of king, country, and the realm. But what happens when you don't fit that mold and you're an artist yourself? Welcome to the I Was Only Doing My Job podcast. I'm Ross Manuel, I'm an amateur historian and writer, and on this episode I look into the life, service, and legacy of a war artist, Signaler Ellis Luciano Silas. Ellis Lucanio Silas was born on the 13th of July 1885 in London to Louis Ferdinand Silas, an artist and designer, and his wife Letezia Zara, an opera singer. He was privately educated by tutors before starting work and his father's art studio having developed an interest in the subject. He studied under the well-known artist Walter Sickert. As an artist, Silas's main interest was marine art, and he regularly travelled to English coastal towns to paint before he sailed to Australia in 1907. Between 1907 and 1910, Silas would spend time painting in Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide, before arriving in Perth and setting up a studio in the back room of a boarding house. A serious and eccentric young artist, known to haunt Perth's art gallery scene, he became the president of Perth's Bohemian Sketch Club and befriended Dr. J.E. Gordon of Cliff Terrace, Perth. When war was declared in 1914, Silas, who had served for three years in the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserves before coming to Australia, had a patriotic desire to volunteer for the AIF. However, as he was far from the stereotype of the Australian soldier, in fact, he struggled a great deal with living up with the expectations of soldiering. In his diary, Silas often complained that he felt socially isolated in the soldier's life. I find this terrible, he wrote in his early days of training. Life in camp and the uncongenial society of rough bushmen. A month after writing this, he quit soldiering. This was partly due to his disappointment about not being selected into the Australian Army Medical Corps, to which he had applied to serve. But it was obvious that he also felt a great deal of peer pressure and a sense of uselessness at not fitting in with a society of Bushman soldiers. I have not yet been sworn in, he wrote, and as I don't feel I'm going to be much use, and as I can't get into the AMC, where I know I would be useful, I think I shall take everybody's advice and just give it up. Yet Silas was drawn back to the army by a sense of duty and shame at the thought of other men doing what he himself could not. Feeling an overwhelming remorse, he returned to camp soon after deserting, only to be rejected. Unperturbed, within the month he attempted to re-enlist, only to be told he did not meet the minimum physical requirements. Eventually he was able to circumvent these requirements and join as a signaller, though that was with the help of a friend who knew a battalion adjutant. On the 16th of October, 1914, at Helena Vale, Western Australia, listing Dr. Gordon as his next of kin, he officially joined the Australian Imperial Force and was assigned to C Company, 16th Battalion, and started his initial training. On the 18th of November, he embarked with the battalion on board the troop ship Dimbola, bound for Melbourne. The ship stopped in Adelaide briefly and the men were given four hours leave. This gave Silas just enough time to visit the Art Gallery of South Australia to see one of his favourite paintings, Circe in Vidosa by John William Waterhouse, a painting depicting the classical mythological creature Circe, based off the tale Metamorphose by Orvid, where Circe turns Celia into a sea monster due to the scorned romantic advances. 
The painting shows a woman with a serious expression standing just above the, a body of water atop a sea monster draped in a black shimmering dress pouring a green liquid from a bowl onto the scene monster, in this case, Cilia. Returning to the Dimbula, he went on to Melbourne, disembarking and started his training at the Broadmeadows camp. On the 22nd of December, 1914, Silas sailed with his battalion aboard the troop ship HMAT Ceramic for Egypt, where he trained at Heliopolis, near Cairo. Despite being reconciled to what he foresaw was his duty, throughout his military career, Silas maintained uncomfortable thoughts of inadequacy, he was never comfortable with military life and continued to feel isolated and affronted by soldiering. It is clear that the other soldiers in the battalion regarded him, though affectionately, as an outsider. Silas was keenly aware of this distance. In January 1915, he wrote in his diary that I'm a snob even in my feeding. Even now, I cannot get used to the rough conditions in which I am surrounded. Two weeks later, he asked rhetorically, I feel like an outcast. Will I ever get used to this life? Not only did Silas feel isolated, he also felt inadequate in the performance of his duties. He found signaling extremely difficult and possessed an aversion to physical violence. After firing his first shot set up with a rifle in October 1914, he recorded that, I know I shall never be able to shoot a man. At Anzac Cove, he reiterated doubts of his capacity as a soldier. I wonder how I shall get on in a charge, he asked, for I have not the least idea how to use a bayonet, and even if I had, I should not be able to do so. The thing is so too revolting. I can only hope that I get shot. Why did they not let me join the Royal Australian Medical Corps for work? Despite his misgivings, Silas did his job professionally, as his service record is absent of any reprimands or issues. At about 6pm on the 25th of April, 1915, Silas went ashore at Gallipoli with the 16th Battalion. It was immediately sent to Pope's Hill at the head of the Monash Valley, where they spent the night digging in under intense rifle fire. Silas later recorded his first experiences in his painting, The End of the Great Day, the 16th Battalion, AIF, digging in in the original trenches on Pope's Hill on the evening of the landing of Anzac, 25th April, by an eyewitness. Defecting a wounded soldier, attempting to dig into a shelter on the side of a steep hill while surrounded by the dead and wounded. For the next five days, the 16th held Pope's Hill against the Ottoman forces, as Silas recorded his drawings of the period that the repetition of the shrapnel in each sketch was not a fad, just a natural order of things. They had become just much a part of the landscape as clouds. He sketched the daily life of troops on the peninsula, portraying both its mundane and horrific aspects. Landing boats filled with Australian soldiers, his first dugout, men bathing under fire, a field dressing station. Death is ever present in all these images, and Silas himself noted that it was not from some morbid sensationalism, but because the dead were very much a part of the daily life and the character of the peninsula. One such sketch captures the element uh, is at the waterhole, made in 1915, where he shows men who had been wounded or killed near a watering hole in an attempt to fill their canteens. Silas annotated the image with the grim comment, One must drink, even if the price is death. His feelings of inadequacy in service was quite unfounded, as Silas acquitted himself with great courage and honour at Gallipoli. In the opening days of the campaign, he acted with such great bravery by signalling under heavy fire to a company of New Zealand troops who were about to stumble into an ambush. For this act, he was mentioned in dispatches for a decoration and was told he had earned the signalers a good name. Silas himself was self-deprecating about the incident. I do not feel I have done anything more than my duty, he wrote, but at least it shows the lads that signaler Silas, the joke of the battalion, was able to do his bit with them and also show somewhat sneering world that artists were not quite the failures on the battlefield, though I would admit that we are not going we're not quite cut out for this sort of work. 
I don't think I can stand much more of it, though. My nerves seem to be going. What little I did have. Constant exposure to heavy fire during his time at Gallipoli caused Silas to suffer neurasthenia, a neurotic condition characterized by fatigue, anxiety, headaches, heart palpitations, high blood pressure, neuralgia, and depression. The common yet outdated diagnosis for what we now consider to be post-traumatic stress. He had been signaling continuously for several days, and potentially without any sleep, before he was found unconscious and delirious by his colleagues and taken to the ambulance station closer to the beach. On the 17th of May, he was put aboard the hospital ship Galica and eventually admitted to the number one Australian General Hospital in Egypt with the neurasthenia and enteric fever. Silas was sent to convalesce in Egypt, however his condition never improved and he was discharged from the AIF as medically unfit for future war service on the 17th of August 1916. Silas's experience on Gallipoli, as recorded in his diary and sketchbook, were published in 1916 under the name Crusading at Anzac Anodomi 1915. In his foreword he wrote, In this work I have not touched upon the big historical facts, but have endeavoured to portray war as the soldier sees it. Shorn of all of its pomp and circumstance, the war seems cold and hunger, heat and thirst, the ravages of fear, the war that brings hail of lead, that tears the flesh and rends the limb and makes of men heroes. While waiting in London for a passage back to Australia, Silas painted works depicting war at Gallipoli. Three of these would be bought by the precursor to the Australian War Memorial. These include his piece, Roll Call, depicting the heartbreaking task of recording those who had survived and those who had been killed following an attack, the attack of the 4th Brigade AIF at Bloody Angle, depicting soldiers attacking up a sheer uh, mountain ridge under intense artillery fire and digging in at Quinn's Post, or the end of the Great Day, which is the one I mentioned earlier about the wounded soldiers digging into a shell crater. He was one of only three artists to record Australia's participation at Gallipoli from first-hand experience, and only one of those to actually paint battle scenes. Despite feeling an affinity for Australia and for fighting in the AIF, it is unclear as to whether or not Silas actually considered himself Australian. At the time, it wasn't necessarily a requirement, and the barrier of inclusion within the Australian paradigm was fluid, as the national identities between Australia and New Zealand and Britain were synonymous. Even in the post-war period, it was common for Australian nationals to consider themselves English first. In 1921, Silas returned to Australia and lived in Sydney, where he worked as a commercial artist and contributed cartoons and articles to the Bulletin magazine. In 1922, he went to the Torbriand Islands in New Guinea, where he lived in a native village and made a collection of local artifacts, which are now located in the Museum of Mankind in London. He also released a book called Primitive Arcadia, which was based on these years, and it was a pseudo-ethnographic study published in 1926. In 1925, Silas returned to England to work as a maritime artist. His painting, The Price of Glory, begun in Perth before he enlisted in the First World War, depicts a naval battle during the First Dutch War, and it caused a minor sensation at the Royal Academy of Arts in 1934. It now hangs in the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, England. Silas also designed posters, illustrated books, and painted commissioned works to hang in ocean liners. Silas married Ethel Florence Dethridge in London in 1927, and she survived him when he died in London of natural causes on the 2nd of May 1972 at the age of 87. The couple would have no children. During his wartime service, Silas struggled to reconcile his disenchantment with the military culture with his conceptions of social duty, but by his contribution to the artistic record of the Australian Imperial Force, he might continue to serve as a more accurate representation of what it means to be an Anzac.
During the course of my research for this episode, I found myself staring at the very different depiction of the Anzac legacy on Gallipoli than the one traditionally shown. Instead of the symbolic identity enshrined within Australian culture as propagated by Charles Bean and war reporters like Ellis Asmead Bartlett, of brave men charging towards the enemy with broad chests and steely-eyed gazes as they run into a hail of gunfire to take the objective from the enemy, Silas's work focused on the marginalized aspects of the Anzac mythology, the dead and wounded men, brutalized and unidealized, as well as the more mundane military activities. His art and willingness to allow a space for psychological complexity that was largely absent from the official legend, Silas's graphic focus on the broken bodies and minds of the Australian soldier threatens the established image of the idealized soldier figure by introducing psychological wounds in the facet of the Anzac experience. And while I will be including a number of his more well-known pieces, I do recommend anyone who's interested to actually look up more of his work. And there you have it. That's the story of Signaler, Ellis, Lucanio, Silas, an unofficial Australian war artist. Next time on the I Was Only Doing My Job podcast, he was an officer from a distinguished Australian naval family and saw extensive service in both the Second World War and the Korean War. He was highly decorated, receiving the prestigious Distinguished Service Cross a total of three times. Next time on the I Was Only Doing My Job podcast, we have our first naval story where I go into the life, service, and legacy of Commander Warwick Seymour Bracegirdle, DSC, and two bars. Thanks for listening to the I Was Only Doing My Job podcast, a Doc Network production. I would really appreciate it and would help out the show if you would share this or leave a comment on Spotify or Google Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts, as it really helps others find the show. If you want to know more about today's episode with photos, show notes, and transcripts, head over to www.thedocnetwork.net and follow the show on IWODMJ on Instagram. Don't worry, there'll be a link in the description. If you want to follow me for more history hijinks and random nerdery, you can follow me on practically everything at at Doc Winters. Once again, my name is Ross. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Bye.